Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories number 16, for mid-January 2023. J. Elamar Miramita, A Cult of Her Own. Before I start, I'm going to ask a favor of you. Tell your friends about the Laurel Hill podcasts. Tell them how much you enjoy them. Tell them how easy they are to enjoy on your smartphone or Bluetooth device. If necessary, show them how to stream or download. I still find a surprising number of people who are intimidated by the idea of podcasts. They really don't know how simple it is. And then I ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. The more evaluations, the higher the show goes in the algorithms, and the more listeners we get. As far as I know, Laurel Hill is the only cemetery in the United States that has its own regular podcast. Thanks. Welcome to the 16th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories an historic and active cemetery in Ballakinwood, Pennsylvania. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide and volunteer podcaster. Laurel Hill West opened in 1869. It's across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia. It is more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East, It has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. And, like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year, now from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. There's plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the conservatory and the bell tower. If you enter on Belmont, just follow the road past the second gate with the white line in the middle. That'll take you right to the bell tower. Another possibility is to just duck in while you're walking the Kinwid Trail. Your best bet for public transportation? Take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, come in via the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. This 16th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is from mid-January 2023. Anna Meister was a Swiss immigrant in the 1850s who declared that she was actually the third person of the Christian Trinity, and she changed her name to Jehovah Elamar Meramita. 
she had a following for many decades, even years after she died. Today, you will hear the story of this bizarre religious cult from South Philadelphia on Biographical Bites from Bala, J. Elamar Miramita, A Cult of One's Own. From testimony offered by Ms. Julia Rudman at the Court of Common Pleas, Philadelphia, March term, 1887. It was revealed to me that she was the Holy Spirit, or that the Holy Spirit dwelt in her body, and the Spirit had to come and testify through the body, the same as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had to take it upon himself, sinly flesh and blood. So I followed the doctrine from the beginning, as I believed at the time, and do to this day. Then, as I understand you, just as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ took upon himself the form of man, and preached and taught mankind who are in existence during the time of his sojourn on earth, so you believe that the Holy Ghost took upon himself the form and body of a woman, in the person of Anna Meister. Yes, sir. And taught and preached as the Holy Ghost to you who were specially favored by receiving her teachings? Yes, sir. You say that this was revealed to you. Do you mean revealed to you by direct revelation? Or that as a matter of conscience, your conscience taught you? What do you mean by its being revealed to you? It was revealed to me when I prayed, because I did not want to go into an irreligion or into any error in my life. I prayed, as I said, and it was shown to me. It was at the dinner time. I was waiting for my husband to come home for dinner, and as I prayed, and as I knelt down, I saw in heaven three figures, just as you see the sun shining in light and brightness. I saw three figures in heaven, and there I saw an elderly man, and I just saw the figures as they would look if I was looking at them out of a cloud. It was two general figures and one lady figure, and that answered me my prayer. I was satisfied on that point. Did the lady figure, at the time you saw those three figures, have the appearance of Miss Meister? When she was preaching, and in such a condition, sometimes with the power, I thought she looked exactly like the figure. You mean she looked exactly like the figure you saw in your vision? Yes, sir. You recognized when she was inspired, and under the power, as you call it, a resemblance in her appearance to the figure that you saw in your vision. Is that what you mean? Yes, sir. This testimony came from a follower of a religious cult led by an immigrant from Schaffhausen, Switzerland, a seamstress who had declared herself to be the third person of the Holy Trinity of Christianity, but who had died in 1884, nearly three years before this testimony. Her name was once Anna Meister. One day, around 1855, Anna was quietly sitting and sewing in her room on Ridge Avenue, when the needle was violently wrenched from her hands by an unknown force. 
she had a revelation in which she was told to do no more work but to go forth and teach men. She called herself the daughter of Jehovah and the sister of Jesus Christ, and people believed her. After founding her religion in 1856, about the same time as the consolidation that brought all the villages and boroughs in the county together to form what we now know as Philadelphia, Anna Meister found followers who formed what became known as the Congregation of the Lord, and her female followers became the Society of the Daughters of God. Anna Meister's first appearance in newspapers that I could find was in February of 1857. It was a court case in which a neighbor accused her of obtaining money under false pretenses. At that time, she was living at 12th Street above Poplar, and she had founded her society the previous year. The accuser, Mrs. Margaret Mast, lived on Germantown above Jefferson Street. She said that a woman named Mrs. Miller had come to her house and invited her to visit the defendant and hear her preach. When Margaret asked how much she would have to pay, the acolyte assured her there was no charge, since if the goddess took money into her hand, it would shake so much that the money would fall out. Well, Margaret visited and heard Anna read some Bible verses and told her not to tell her husband about the visit. Anna then slipped Margaret a piece of paper telling her that she was of the pedigree of Manasseh and that she and all the other followers would have to give something as an offering to God. Mrs. Miller told her that Anna Meister wanted a blue silk dress to go to heaven in and that when she got it, a cloud would descend, envelop her, and she would go up. Well, Margaret gave Mrs. Miller $10 for the dress, and she loaned her an additional $10. Another member of the congregation told Margaret that she had given Anna a purple silk dress and that her son gave her a silver cup. On another occasion, Mrs. Miller told Margaret that she had seen Anna in heaven on a white horse, Christ being on one side of her and an angel on the other and a revelation had been received. Margaret Mast would not be allowed into heaven unless she had a gold watch and chain. This, she said, was the word of God. So she bought a handsome bracelet. But she was soon informed that another message from heaven required the jewelry to be handed over to Anna Meister. This is when Margaret realized she had been taken for a ride, and she told her husband, hence the court case. At her trial, Anna Meister was elegantly dressed and wore seven rings on her fingers. The reporter called her, quote, a coarse-looking German woman with a very cunning look out of a restless eye, end quote. Further testimony showed that at least 200 members of this society who were all compelled to furnish whatever Anna claimed to have seen in a vision. She had explained to her followers that the time was drawing near when she must reascend to her home in heaven and that God, her father, desired to see her arrayed in a particular kind of silk, a gold watch, a chain, 
etc., etc., and that it was the duty of her followers, under pain of perdition, to supply her with these articles. She always disavowed accepting or using these things for her own pleasure, but said it simply followed the command of God. Anna Meister became a master of duping gullible German immigrants. To some followers, she gave a string of commandments, including the banning of the use of coffee, tobacco, and onions. Once she baptized a child after death, saying it was necessary for salvation. She preached that Armageddon would begin in Philadelphia in 1886, and the only way to be saved was to attach yourself to her. Now, word of this trial reached newspapers as far away as England. The Gloucester Chronicle noted, At Philadelphia, a woman named Anna Meister has been arrested on charges of obtaining money under false pretenses. This Anna Meister, like Miller and Joe Smith, is the founder of a new society and faith, the doctrines of which are a thousand times more absurd, ridiculous, and blasphemous than were promulgated by either of the two worthies named above. She announces herself to be the daughter of God and the Holy Ghost and the sister of Christ. And with these absurd pretensions, she has managed to raise a society numbering about 200 women, all Germans, no men admitted, in this city of brotherly love, where the people are supposed to be fully enlightened in the principles of the Bible and Christianity. In 1865, using money from South Philadelphia pretzel magnate Philip Becker, Anna and her followers bought a ramshackle row house in the far reaches of the city on South 11th Street, just off Washington. It was here they established their shrine and their place of worship. She named it the Temple of the Congregation of the House of the Lords. In a back room on the third floor was the tabernacle where she preached and prayed from a raised platform and a very solemn-looking throne-like armchair. No mere mortal was allowed on the platform or to sit in the sacred chair, even years after her death. Now she had taken to wearing a red velvet gown embroidered with the sun, moon, and stars, and a heavily bejeweled crown. She distributed herbs to be used as medicinal tea. She demanded chaste relationships between men and women. Even husbands and wives were expected to live like brothers and sisters. She placed dietary restrictions on her followers. Some were remanded to eat nothing but cabbage salads. Another spent the last months of her life eating nothing but seedless oranges. She had a holy dread of Schuylkill River water. One witness relates that on one occasion, as the head of the congregation was raising a glass of hydrant water to her lips, an unseen power dashed it from her hands, and writing appeared on the table that henceforth she should not drink hydrant water unless it was first boiled. So this became a credo for the faithful. You must boil all your water before drinking it. Another revelation told them not to eat pork. Surprisingly, wine was okay, and she offered a sweetened red wine to her followers during services. This is from another follower under oath at her extortion trial. 
Did she ever exhibit any supernatural power more than human persons could do? She could do more than anyone else on this earth. How do you know that? At one time, there was a woman, very sick. She had a number of doctors before. She did not know right away by this sickness what was the matter with her. Miss Meister passed her hand over the woman's whole body when she also passed her hands over my mother's eyes. At once, the whole internal organism was laid open and exposed to the gaze of my mother. She could see that the woman's heart was affected. Miss Meister then passed the palm of her hand over the table. When my mother read upon the table the treatment which was to be given to the poor woman, the treatment was given to her and she was entirely healed and very quickly. On 20 August 1857, the jury rendered a verdict of not guilty, but that the defendants had to pay the costs of the trial. Anna Meister was released, not to be heard from again for many years. Her followers were sworn to a vow of secrecy, so virtually no one knew that they still existed. Soon, Anna Meister told her followers of another transformation. She had been transported to the sky and had walked among saints and angels in heaven, and then she visited hell. When she returned, her hair rapidly grew longer and longer until one day it all fell out, and on the floor the hair formed itself into words that would be her new name, Jehovah Elamar Meramitta. I have found three different spellings for Meramitta and two for Elamar. So researching her in the 19th century Philadelphia newspapers was a little bit tricky. Her final 25 years were very mysterious. Despite all her so-called healthful ways of living, Anna Meister, aka Jehovah Elamar Meramitta, died in January 1884 from interstitial nephritis. She was 55 years old. Her death card states her marital status was widowed, but I have found no evidence that she was ever married. After a stay in the receiving vault, her body was laid to rest in the Washington section of Laurel Hill West. The owner of the plot, as listed in cemetery records, is congregation of God. One of Meramitta's most faithful followers was Mrs. Julia Rudman, a produce vendor who had helped organize the congregation. She told this story. One day, on a Sunday morning, I was out to the cemetery where the body was buried since she departed from this earth. As I walked up to the grave, there's a stone on the grave, I stood about a short distance maybe three or four steps from the stone, and I turned my face toward the morning sun, then looked the other way toward the evening sun or the stone, and as I looked there, the whole figure stood on the middle of the stone just as I had seen it the day that I had described before. The whole figure I saw standing on the stone, and I felt weak in my system, and I started praying, and then it passed off. That I saw, as I see you sitting down there before my eyes. And the figure, you said, was the figure of Miss Meramita? 
It was the figure exactly as she was in life and in the body. I saw that just the same as I described before in the condition that I saw them. Another follower testified to seeing three angels, one of whom held a scroll with golden writing on it. It was written in golden letters that Merimetta is the daughter of Jehovah and the sister of our Savior. Did the angel have wings? There was no such thing as wings. I saw the Savior. It was between one and two o'clock in the afternoon. I was downhearted on account of a friend of mine. She left Miss Merimetta in the congregation, and I was downhearted, and I knelt down and prayed to the Lord. And when I prayed, I saw a gentleman come in, and I saw a second come in, and then I saw a third person come in. One's head was just like a halo, so I could not say any more. One side of it was blue, and on the other shoulder it was just blood red. They were all alike, but the middle one had a halo around his head, just like the sun. And that was our Savior. He raised his hand, and he said, This earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And then he departed. After Merimita's death, her Meister family tried to claim the 11th Street Temple, which had cleverly been purchased under her spiritual name of Jehovah Elamar Merimita. A judge ruled that this indicated the property belonged to the religious group and not just an individual. The group stayed, and her disappointed family was heard from no more. And like any religious group that preached celibacy, it did not attract a lot of young followers. See Father Divine, the Shakers, many others. The group dwindled, especially after Armageddon didn't occur in 1886. After 1897, it wasn't until 1905 that they again made the newspapers. And this time it was because of the stench of a dead body coming from the house. On August 7th of that year, at the peak of summer, neighbors of the house at 1128 South 11th Street complained to health officials of an overwhelming smell of rot coming from the premises. The Board of Health showed up at the door. Mrs. Carolyn Lang, a longtime follower of Miramita, met Dr. Shoemaker by talking out a window and explained that her housemate, Sister Julia Rudman, the one who testified in court many years before, was very weak and she was resting. Eventually, with the help of a neighbor, Dr. Shoemaker convinced Sister Caroline to open the door. On the third floor, Shoemaker found the decaying, maggot-covered corpse of Sister Julia, dead for several weeks. There were two empty beds in the room, apparently waiting the return of Miramita and Jesus Christ. Apparently, since Sister Julia had died, Sister Caroline had been sleeping in the room next door and insisted, She's not dead. She's only sleeping. She also said that any who interfered with the will of Merimetta would be punished by God. When Coroner Dugan asked straightforwardly if Lang knew the day that Rudman had died, she became confidential for a moment, and she declared, Yes, she is dead, but God Merimetta will bring her back. 
I gave her vinegar, just as the soldiers gave the Lord vinegar when he asked for water on the cross. It was that vinegar which caused his resurrection, and it will bring Sister Rudman back. A coroner's jury decided that Sister Rudman had died of exhaustion at 73 years old. Sister Lang explained her ritual with a bizarre story about their major benefactor, the pretzel man Philip Becker. We went to his home when they said he was dead. We knew that he was not dead. And when they took him to West Laurel Hill Cemetery, we expected something to happen at any minute. But they put him in the ground, and we all went away. A few days later, Sister Rudman and I went to the cemetery, and we saw God Miramita there at the grave. Uh, Miramita and Becker are actually buried in adjacent plots, Washington 152 and 154. She put her arm down into the earth and put her finger in Becker's mouth so he could breathe. And then we heard his voice. He asked for food. Before we left, we put a tube down into the grave so he could breathe. When he came back, the tube was gone. The grave was afterward opened and only a coat was found. Mr. Becker had gone. He meets with us every Sunday. The siren song of West Laurel Hill was too much for Sister Carolyn Lang, and she again returned to her goddess's grave site. I knelt upon the grave, and then with my bare hands and a spade, I dug until the coffin lay before me. It was sunrise before I pried open the lid of the casket, and the goddess lay asleep. I spoke to her, and she opened her eyes and reproached me for not having faith. Sister Caroline was found by cemetery workers and turned over to the police, but eventually she was freed without charges. Only a few weeks before, Philip Becker Jr. had sold the 11th Street House of the Temple to the Wyeth Brothers, founders of Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, whose factory adjoined the property. Sister Caroline refused to leave the house, even when encouraged to do so by her Boston businessman nephew, George Sauer. No, George, I cannot do as you ask. I will take your advice on anything but that which, as an unbeliever, you cannot understand. The goddess Miramita appeared to me last night in a vision and cautioned me not to leave until she came and took me away, which would be in just a few days. I am not long for the flesh of this world, and soon I shall be with those of Miramita's followers who have already been called. They are alive, for theirs is an everlasting life as mine is. I shall never die, although I soon may be called upon to go to heaven with Miramita. Finally, on 28 August 1905, Sister Carolyn Lang, the last surviving member of the cult of Miramita, and with an eviction notice hanging over her head, voluntarily left the property to live in Boston with her nephew. The Wyeth brothers quickly turned the former temple into a chemical laboratory. John Wyeth is interred at Laurel Hill East in Section X. And when Caroline died in 1909, she was buried in the same plot as Goddess Miramita and Sister Julia Rudman. 
On 5 September 1905, an auctioneer with a big wooden hammer ruled as the high priest in the Temple of the Holy Ghost Society at 1128 South 11th Street, and the sacred relics of Merimetta and her followers were sold at shockingly low prices. The temple was stripped of everything, and about $800 was realized, which would be given to Miss Lang. Merimetta's throne slash armchair went for $3. The dress suit, which the angel Gabriel was supposed to wear on state occasions, was sold to a second-hand dealer for $2.50. The picture of Merimetta, holiest of holies, brought a quarter. Other articles disposed of included furniture, clothing, silverware, and a black satin casket said to have contained at one time the body of Merimetta. When you visit her unassuming grave, she is the only one with a stone. There are seven other members of the cult in the plot with her, but if they had stones, they were long ago worn away. And no one has reported seeing a vision of her for more than a century. February edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories will cover three more black trailblazers in Philadelphia. Dr. James Alexander Batts spent his entire professional career as an obstetrician gynecologist improving the lot of black women in Philadelphia. Barbara Blackshear was a pioneer woman in computer technology whose work on the Xerox 8010 star inspired Steve Jobs early in his career. And Douglas Jocko Henderson was an R&B disc jockey who influenced Philadelphia's early rap and hip-hop scene in the 1970s. Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, episode number 17 in mid-February, will be about Raphael and Julia Cole, who tired of the massive oppression they encountered when swimming while black, so they started their own groundbreaking Nile Swim Club. I remind you that there are self-guided tours available for both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, download the app. For Laurel Hill West, you'll find it with your podcast. There's a walkthrough from the Kinwood Trail entrance to the Pencoid exit and another in the opposite direction. If you do the round trip, it's almost two hours of stopping at stones, peering in mausoleums, 
and hearing about nearly 100 people who helped make Philadelphia what it is today. Now, by the time you're listening to this, the Arborist Tour at Laurel Hill East may be sold out. It's scheduled for Sunday, January 22nd from 1 until 3 p.m. called Barks, Buds, and Berries of Laurel Hill East. A wintry stroll with the chief arborist. Make sure that there are still tickets available. The Boneyard Bookworms January Book Club is scheduled for Thursday, January 26th at 6 p.m. You can learn more at the website. There's a Hot Spots Tour, a general tour of Laurel Hill East on Friday, January 27th at 10 a.m. And there's a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places general tour at Laurel Hill West on Saturday the 28th, also at 10 a.m. And then I'm doing part two of my serpent symbolism in Laurel Hill on Tuesday, January 31st. That's a virtual tour. You have to sign up in advance. There is no charge. We certainly appreciate a contribution, though. And that is 6.30, Tuesday, January 31st. Early February, Hotspots Tour on Saturday, February 11th from 10 until noon. Till Death Do Us Part, Love Stories of Laurel Hill East, Saturday, February 12th, from 1 p.m. until 3 p.m. This is a terrific tour. Gwen Kaminsky is giving this tour. Gwen is one of our very experienced tour guides. She gives terrific tours. There's a virtual hotspots and storied plots on Wednesday, February 15th. You can enjoy Laurel Hill East from your home. And I'm going to throw one more in because it's a wonderful tour. It's called All Thorns, No Roses, Love Gone Wrong at Laurel Hill West. That's Saturday, February 18th at 1 o'clock. Sarah Hamill does this tour. It is fantastic. I don't know how else to describe it. it I, I'm jealous when I hear Sarah give this tour. She's done such good research on it. Let's see, what else? Hotspots and storied plots, Friday 24th at East at 10 a.m. There's a sacred spaces at Saturday the 25th at 10 a.m. And then February 26th, Black Trailblazers of Laurel Hill West, a Black History Month tour. There's one more that I missed here. There's an online session on Thursday, February 23rd, Marion Stokes, Community Media and Writing History. I did a podcast on Marion last year. This is a discussion co-presented with Philly Cam. Philly Cam is the community radio and television station in Center City. I do a weekly radio show for Philly Cam called Dr. Joe's Grove every Tuesday afternoon from 2 until 4. So that is what is coming up. As far as bibliography Everything came out of the newspapers. I've got newspaper articles from 1857. That's when she was sued the first time. Um, A couple of articles in 1860 that are a little more complete. One of them is called Religious Fanatics in Philadelphia. And the other is called Remarkable Superstition in Philadelphia. And then you jump ahead to 1885. This is long after Anna Meister had died. 
and a series of articles then, and then another one from 1888, a couple from 1889, and then 1897, and then a series, of course, in 1905, after Sister Julia Rudman's body was stinking up the neighborhood. There is a write-up from Hidden Philadelphia, October 30th, 2018, by Ryan Briggs. It's called The Ghastly Tale of South Philly's Cult of the Holy Ghost. Uh, Ryan starts his with the stench of death hung heavy along South 11th Street in 1905. So he starts at the end and then works his way back. And I took a different tack. (laughs) I started at the beginning and kind of followed through on it. All bones considered and biographical bites from Bala are researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster for both cemeteries. The theme song, Names at Peace, is by local artist James Harrow. Maybe I'll see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well.